coming up. I chose not to be here today because I refuse to waste another second of my life in your presence. I have always been a thing for your amusement. I hated every second of the 18 years of sexual abuse I endured. J.C. Dugard was not in court, but her presence and strength was felt all the same. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. ABC 10 on the scene a day after J.C. Dugard was snatched from the side of the road while walking from her South Lake Tahoe home to the bus stop. Her stepfather saw it happen. She was just 11 years old. A year later, no sign of J.C. The trail is essentially cold. Hope is all there is. Friends and family don't know if she's made it to age 12. J.C. Lee Dugard began a life of horror after the couple allegedly grabbed her as she walked to a school bus stop in South Lake Tahoe. It was on this day 30 years ago that J.C. Dugard was kidnapped from a school bus stop in California. I'm joined by Walt Gray, longtime news anchor at ABC 10 in Sacramento. And Walt actually has a very personal and professional connection to this case and We'll get into that. Well, thanks for being here. First of all, let's go back to this day in 1991. Tell us about what happened. I had only been in in the market for three years. So this was 1991. J.C. Dugard was in the Lake Tahoe area and she was kidnapped. Uh, She was at a school bus stop and was kidnapped and essentially vanished. I mean, to say she was kidnapped, we didn't know what had happened to her. Um, uh, essentially, I think there had been some word, a station wagon, but she basically disappeared in 1991. And, um, and, and I was familiar with the case because obviously this popped back up um, in 2009. Um, but, and then when her name popped up in 2009, I'm like, J.C. Dugard, where have I heard that name? And so it was one of those rare instances, Will, where you know, someone disappears and years later surfaces, you don't hear that often. It doesn't end that way. So then fast forward, Walt, many, many years later in 2009, and really the miraculous happens. Yeah, it's, it's, she disappears. She's in Myers, California, in the Tahoe area. She's 11 years old. She's at the bus stop, never seen again. So then let's go to 2009. She's with uh, an older couple on the campus of Cal Berkeley, and somebody was talking to somebody. They interacted with that group. Somebody was suspicious about this girl. Uh, It just didn't seem right. It was one of those things that you really always hope somebody in the public will see something, say something, and it it got to the police. They checked it out. Uh, They came over. They interviewed uh, uh, this older couple, Philip and Nancy Garrido, uh, questioned them. And in the course of the questioning, um, you know, uh, interviewed the girl at the time. And the girl turned out to say she was J.C. Lee Dugard, which, you know, you type that into the system, all kinds of bells and whistles go off since this was an unsolved disappearance from 1991. And so uh, then the news headlines start coming out. J.C. Dugard found in Berkeley, you know, all of these years later. Uh, And then that's where things got even crazier. Investigators leave the Concord Police Department saying very little about the J.C. Dugard case. 
These FBI agents confirm there will be more information tomorrow. There'll be a press conference tomorrow on it. I don't have any details. You'll, you'll be notified probably later tonight. There'll be a press conference tomorrow. We don't have any details right now. Okay, you say anything about it? No, we're working it. J.C. Dugard was 11 years old when she was reportedly kidnapped 18 years ago. J.C. Dugard walked into the Contra Costa County Investigator's Office. She was finally free from years of rape and torture. Well, after all those years, J.C. Dugard still had family looking for her right, hoping she would someday actually turn up alive as she did. Yeah, she had, she had the quintessential mom who never gave up. Uh, who, you know, through the years uh, held out hope. I mean, these these are oft used cliches, but in this case, um, you know, accurate. Uh, there was a, a, a stepdad who was involved, uh, family, aunts, uncles. You know, you just put yourselves in the in the in their spot, and you just never give up because you've never discovered a body. Um, there's still always hope. And so here it was when it comes out, she's, um, she's been found. And you think the first thing will is this overwhelming sense of relief and, oh my gosh, she's alive. And once that's established in your soul, in your being, then you're like, oh, what's happened to her? What's, where has she been all this time? And what did they do to her? Philip and Nancy Garrido were arraigned in an El Dorado County courtroom. Looking very calm, Philip and Nancy Garrido appear before a judge in El Dorado County. They declined to hear the 29 charges filed against them. But a lengthy complaint says J.C. Lee Dugard began a life of horror after the couple allegedly grabbed her as she walked to a school bus stop in South Lake Tahoe. For a lot of people to question at the time, and maybe even still today, might be, why didn't she just run? You know, here they were out in public when she was actually spotted with the man who kidnapped her. Yeah. Well, she she's sensitive to the whole Stockholm Syndrome thing, where people asked her, and as you've wondered, you know, why didn't you just sneak out? Why didn't you just A, B, and C? Uh, there was never an opportunity for her to do that. Uh, at a very young age, her kidnapper, Philip Garrido, fathered two children. So, again, it wasn't like she could get out. Um, she had two young kids with her. Uh, and so it, it, it evolved into this very complex issue where she was basically living in a shed in the backyard that was fenced. Um, there were times where she was out in public with them, but I think it was the typical young female who felt, you know, if I make a run for it, make a move for it, um, I'm going to be killed. Or, you know, I, and, I, and I think JC has, has shared that part of the story um, in response to people saying, why didn't you just jam, you know? Walt, you mentioned that shed in the backyard. We've seen photos and videos of, of that really, you know, her, her living situation for so many years, that's essentially where she'd been living all those years, right? Yeah. Uh, Philip Garrido picked her out. She was 11. I think she had started having children, you know, in her mid-teens, two kids. And, uh, and so this was in Antioch, which is sort of a smaller town, you know, a, a, a suburb of San Francisco or Sacramento. It's kind of in the middle of both. 
So, uh, yeah, this is where it, 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 it went on, obviously, from 1991 to 2009, where she was there, you know, all of this time. Then we got our first look inside the Garrido home. Susanna, it's tough to believe people could actually live there after seeing the photos. Well, Christina, those pictures are definitely disturbing. They were taken late last month, five days after Philip and Nancy Garrido were arrested. The fish tank is filthy, completely covered in algae. Books, boxes, clothes, old furniture are all laying around the living area. Philip Garrido had a criminal record. He was not a good guy even before he made this decision to kidnap and imprison J.C. Dugard in his backyard. Can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, very true. And again, it, it was another situation where he being um, a, a parolee, uh, cops would periodically do checks on him. And, um, you know, there was enough that they could have found something. They never looked in the backyard. Um, there was uh, an exposure of the system. And I think it's it's a systemic problem where you do periodic checks on parolees. You know, does law enforcement have enough tools, enough people to accurately and sufficiently do these checks and, and all of that? So, so, yeah, this was a bad dude who was doing a bad thing and, and got away with it. His wife was in on it. I mean, people, I mean, she could have easily said, hey, this isn't right. But she was lock, stock and barrel in on this. So in, in, as far as I know, it was just the two of them. Nobody else knew what was going on in that backyard other than the Garritos and, of course, JC, who was back there literally as a prisoner by herself and then with two small children, two daughters, that she was essentially raising in that shed. Walt, eventually Philip Garrido reached out to you specifically. Talk to us about when and how that all came about. Well, that was... That's kind of where I come in on this. Oddly, uh, he was arrested on August 26th in Berkeley. And uh, the next day or that day, uh, while he had his dime, you know, you, you get a chance to make some phone calls. He called our newsroom and asked to speak with me. And so it's maybe 20 minutes until five. And I'm having a, you know, a cup of coffee. I'm going through the 5 p.m. news. I was anchoring the newscast at the time there at the KCRA, the NBC station. And so the assistant news director runs up to me and he says, Philip Garrido's on the phone for you. And I'm like, what? And so he, we rushed back into the audio booth and um, they patched him up. And he, he said, Mr. Walt, is that you? And I said, yes. Uh, and I will tell you, Will. It was probably the biggest interview I've ever done and the least prepared by far of any interview I've ever done. I mean, I was aware of the case. I had looked at the headlines of it. But to, to have a 15-minute interview with this guy, as I'm preparing for the 5 p.m. news and trying to wrap that interview up and go on the news at 5 and say, breaking news, I just got off the phone with Philip Garrido. I mean, um, let's just say that that evening uh, I was in line for a pretty strong cocktail. Did Philip Greedo tell you why he reached out to you and not someone else? Obviously, you were and are well known in the area and the station is known. But uh, did he talk about that? He 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 did not. Uh, he ne he never answered that. Um, Antioch is a, a town that's on the fringe of our viewing area. I, I don't know if he was a viewer of our station. Uh, we had our conversation. Um, 
which, you know, I've gone back and, and listened to it and, and it was painful for me to, uh, to listen to that because I only had, you know, introductory knowledge of the case. Uh, the questions that I threw at him, I, I hoped and prayed would not be analyzed by journalism students. Uh, if they were, I would say, hey, you know, here's the deal on this one. You know, I, I, I did the best I could with very little prep. And so uh, subsequently, after that interview, uh, in the months of his incarceration and pre-trial and trial, he would send me a letter uh, once a month. And he was only corresponding with me. And the letters, the first letter, I think, was, you know, and it was much like our conversation. He was like, this is this is going to end up being a beautiful story once it gets out of how it all worked out. I think he was alluding to the fact that even though J.C. was kidnapped, it all worked out because there were beautiful children that came from this. And then subsequently, he then felt in another letter that she wasn't getting good representation, legal representation. Uh, And and then there was a third letter, again, that was coming into the station, uh, something to do with her her welfare or well-being or something. I mean, it was just whatever, you know, but again, I was his principal contact. I did go to the jail. I did try to see him. His attorney was not happy about that, which I can understand, but I was kind of like, listen, dude, you called me. You're sending me letters. Can we just, okay, here we are. If you got something to say, would you say it on camera? And so his attorney wasn't crazy about that. And it it never happened. I totally agree with her. I would have done the same thing. I ended up having a very good relationship with her and, uh, and also Nancy's attorney. Uh, but, but I understood they had a job to do. And, you know, I'm sure in his interview, I would have had to have asked him questions that would have, his answers would have completely implicated him and convicted him. So, that was pretty much that, you know, in terms of my interactions. But he was, I was the only one he reached out to. Well, we can't really presume to know why he was, if I can use the term, using you or the station and maybe using is not the right word, but in the years to follow, did you ever figure out why he chose you, what his motivation was, what that messaging was all about? Yeah, exactly. I think he was using us. I think your initial observation was was spot on, Will, and uh, using us to communicate with J.C., um, so I, you know, I would got close to the two deputies that were assigned to her. And so, um, you know, whatever Garrido was saying to me, I think was relayed to her. So I think if I was the intermediary, uh, that there was, he was, you know, I, I, that's how it worked out. You know, um, I never got a chance to sit down and talk with her, uh, which I felt was unfortunate. Um, and I never got a chance to sit down with Garrido. Uh, he, he just communicated with me. He wouldn't allow me to communicate with him. So, but I will tell you, it was strange for me because, because I was the only one that he was communicating with, it sort of became m- my 15 minutes. Uh, I was on the Today Show. I was on CNN. I was on MSNBC. I was on Fox Radio. I mean, it was just, it was a crazy month for me when this all started. And then I covered the trial. Um, So I followed up on it. So I was up there every day covering the the trial as it happened. And 
I mean, we all knew what happened. We all knew he was going to be convicted. I mean, there wasn't any, there wasn't one of those things where, you know, uh, it was a mistaken identity or something like that. So it was just a question of letting it play out, you know, but it was a, it was a, it was an interesting time for me because like I said, he just, he called me out of the blue and uh, I became, I very much became part of the whole story, uh, whether it, I wanted it or not. And the official sentence for Philip Garrido, 431 years in prison, a sentence he is serving at California State Prison Corcoran. Nancy Garrido serving a sentence of 36 years to life in the California Institute for Women. Well, in the news business, you get the chance to talk to a lot of people. Any final thoughts on talking to Philip Garrido or hearing from him on the phone and in letters? Well, he's he's crazy, um, and that explains a lot. It's not an excuse by any means, but when he's trying to justify that this, you'll see it, Mr. Walt. It was a beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It's like no, you kidnapped an eleven-year-old girl and you had two kids with her against her will. You know what part of that's a beautiful story? So there's the lesson is there's a lot of guys out there, and I have two daughters. And so to me, that really that really struck home as a parent and as a journalist to listen to that and to make sure that my kids know that. And uh, it's a lesson for for all of us that they're out there and they think they don't think anything of it that you just pick up a girl off of a bus stop and make her your own. So that's what's that's what's the creepiest part of it. All right, my thanks to Walt Gray at ABC10 in California. Well, anytime. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday with new episodes Monday through Friday. We also have a weekly show covering cases around the country, True Crime Chronicles. Check it out today wherever you listen to podcasts. That's True Crime Chronicles. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.